So tonight, I'd like to look a little about um, Buddhahood, awakening, Zen, ethics. And I'd like to, to do this through uh, using uh, different quotes from the Zen uh, tradition. So this is uh, the first quote I like to use. And this is a, a story about uh, somebody going to see a teacher. And the person asked the teacher, a master in China long ago, what is a Buddha? And the master answered, I could tell you, but you will not believe me. And so the fellow said, well, I came from very far to listen to you. Why should not I believe you? So the master relented and said, all right, all right. Then, if you are sure, and the master says, the Buddha is nothing special. You are the Buddha, your mind is a Buddha. So, what, one of the, the points uh, in the Zen tradition, in some, in some other Buddhist tradition, they see Buddhahood more like a seed that you have to water so that it blossoms. But in the Zen tradition, they have this very strong idea that we are the Buddha already. And at the same time, that the Buddha is nothing special. So you have these two ideas together that we are the Buddha and it might not be as special as we think it is. So there is these two ideas. And at the same time, you know, when we told you are the Buddha, then you might not feel very Buddha-like and you wonder, well, you know, how come, you know, if I am the Buddha, I should be Buddha-like now or I should be Buddha-like all the time. But what does it mean to be a Buddha? Does it mean that 100% all the time I am always equanimous? Or does it mean 100% all the time I am wise? 100% all the time I am compassionate? Often there is this idea that kind of in a way to be a Buddha one has to be perfect or that enlightenment is perfection. Or, if we become a Buddha, we'll, we'll start floating on our little cloud and nothing will bother us. That's often another idea. But here, what he says is interesting. He says, it's nothing special and you are the Buddha. So, in a way, we can interpret it in different ways. We can interpret it that we all have the potential to be a Buddha. We can also interpret it that we're working, we're not looking for some Buddha outside of ourselves, but we're actually trying to find, trying to make emerge the Buddha within. But then, there is another quote 
And this is by Huinet, the sixth patriarch. And that's what he said. He or she who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he or she was one under delusion. That's interesting. I mean, we're supposed to really, you know, we're supposed to go for enlightenment. We're supposed to go for <coughs> awakening. This is a very strong message in the Zen tradition. You must awaken. And you hear lots of this story about people who awaken in different ways. But here, that's what he says. He who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than he was when under delusion. And this connects little to when I was talking about identity. That, in a way, the idea of uh, Buddhahood, the idea of awakening, is not that we're going to become bigger, is not that we're going to become more important. Recently I got this wonderful email about linked, linked, and they were telling me they could bolster my identity. <laughs> bolster my reputation and my identity. Reputation possibly, but identity? I thought, wow, they're going far, you know. And so, in a way, it's kind of looking. In a way, we have this aspiration to wisdom, to compassion, to awakening, to become a Buddha. But is it in a way to bolster ourselves, to bolster our identity? Or is it actually to become the best we can be in whatever condition, according to condition? Because I think, in a way, it's possible to have a moment of awakening. It's possible to, what I would call actually a moment of de-grasping. And we might be sitting there and suddenly you feel all loving. Or suddenly you feel you understand everything. Or you walk outside and you feel connected to everything. And in a way you could say these are wonderful moments. But they are moments. They're not identity. They're just an experience. And the way the question is, how is that experience going to make a difference when I come back home and I talk to my neighbor? Or I go to the office and I have to deal with my boss or a, a, a colleague. So I think in a way what Winang is trying to point out is what is the purpose of this idea of enlightenment? Is this in a way like, you know, linked, bolstering our reputation, bolstering our identity? Or is actually, in a way, dissolving, releasing what stops our Buddhahood our potential for wisdom, for awakening, to actually manifest 
to develop. Then there is this one, this quote. It's a little uh, difficult quote, but I think it's a very important one. And that's by Tawe, who was a, the Zen Chinese master, really, in a way, instituted, developed that idea of the questioning, like, what is this? And so that's what he says. In the daily activities of the student of the path, to empty object is easy, but to empty mind is hard. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind, and objects will be empty by themselves. So let me go over this a little. It's kind of a little kind of a Zen language. So basically what he's saying is that actually to empty object is easy, but to empty the mind is hard. Actually it's relatively easy to see that things are impermanent, to see that things are conditioned, to see that things are unreliable. But so, so in a way it's easy to, to kind of say, oh yes, when I was um, when I was a nun in Korea and I heard about impermanence, I said, oh yeah, impermanence, you know. A vase would be broken, oh yeah, it's impermanence. Especially, it's not mine, who cares? <laughs> it's impermanent. And so it was kind of a very easy way to, to not care. You know? Oh, it's impermanent, oh, who cares? But I really understood impermanence when I saw my father die, when I saw his last breath. Then I understood impermanence. And then it really changed my relationship. So I think what he's pointing out is that in a way we can easily say, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, I don't care. Oh, I am beyond this. <laughs> like there was this uh, wonderful article many years ago in Tricycle by this woman saying she had all these Buddhist boyfriends who wanted sex but no, no involvement. They were beyond involvement, but not beyond sex for some reason. <laughs> you know? And so it's easy. I think it's kind of to see when we kind of start to look at emptiness as in a way to kind of be above things. So that's what he's saying. Are we using emptiness as a way to, oh, I don't care. Oh, this is all illusion. I am beyond that. And he said, actually, that's quite easy to do. We can quite easily go down that path sometimes. But what he says is, emptying the mind, that is what's difficult. Emptying object is relatively easy. But emptying the mind, emptying the mind of grasping, emptying the mind of identifying, that is what is difficult. And that in a way that's what the job is. That's what the practice is about. Is emptying the mind, not so that there is nothing, but that emptying the mind so that in a way the Buddhahood, the potential for wisdom and compassion can manifest, can be developed as it comes out 
instead of being stopped, instead of being limited. Recently, I thought this on Facebook. Sometimes I look on Facebook, idly, not often, but sometimes. And sometimes you get this kind of really interesting stuff. And here was this teacher, Zen teacher, who had, a good friend of mine who has had lots of problems with ethics and different things. And basically, on Facebook, he was doing his mea culpa. And I thought, what? Why not? <laughs> and basically, that's what he was saying. He thought he could empty object, and then he would be okay. He did not have to empty the mind. But on the contrary, that's what the Taoist says. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. This is the thing. If you have this, oh yeah, I don't care, this is impermanent, this is all illusion, this is fine. But you don't empty the mind. Then actually it has this opposite effect. That you will be overwhelmed. Actually by object, but you won't be aware of it. You will be blind to it. It's like once I was looking at some chat thing, and then this person was saying, oh, I, I had this amazing experience. I was at one with the universe. It was so fantastic. And then he said, but now I feel terrible because my girlfriend left me. It's like, yeah, I mean, we can feel at one with the universe. Why not? But that might not necessarily help us to deal with how can I be with the girlfriend? How can I see her? Instead of possibly going in too much idealism, abstraction, and not deal with how do I cultivate love? How do I cultivate wise love with another person? And so this is what, in a way, it's saying. And I think when he says the Buddha is nothing special, I think this is what this is about. That the more special we make this kind of thing, awakening, enlightenment, Buddhahood, then the more we actually go into abstraction. And actually we're not dealing with what is going on here? How can I relate to this person? How can I see this person? How can I be with the suffering of this person? How can I be with my own suffering? And so I think it's kind of in a way, that's one of the things you often have in the Zen tradition. They kind of like, at one level, they seem very out there, awakening, Buddha, and everything. But then generally they bring it back to, but we are here. And that's why they have this saying, sentient beings are Buddhas. Buddhas are sentient beings. They're not separate. It's just that they can go one way or the other. And that's why here, that's what it says. To, not, to let not a passing thought rise up his mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated is Buddha. I think this is maybe what you have had a lot to do during this retreat, trying to meditate, having all kinds of thought. And personally, I think, Again, not to see the thought as a problem. I mean, as Winning said, if you have a thousand thoughts, 
You have a thousand times the opportunity to come back and to be present. So the thought itself is not a problem. It's more our relationship to it. Do we fight it? Do we reject it? Do we get overwhelmed by it? Can we have a different relationship? Can we see it arise? Can we become aware of it, its shape? To me, that's what is, is fascinating with meditation, is that over time, because thoughts are very intangible, but over time, you can actually feel the taste of the thought. What, what is it that started it? Like, for example, if you have a tendency to daydream, then the, the, the taste is gooey, like chocolate cake. Mm. <laughs> you know, like you're sitting in meditation, the sound, what is this, the breath, yes, yes, yes. And then there is this thought, oh, if I had, if I was, if I was the greatest writer or the greatest Buddha, or if I won the lottery, and it's so enticing. It's like, mm. <laughs> it, I mean, the, the thought itself has something within it. It's the same if you have uh, what I would call fantasizing, which is negative, when you're afraid, and generally because of fear. And so you have this kind of like tremulous feeling, and ooh, it goes into that, you know, what if this happened? That's what I would experience when I was in Korea. I would go to the bathroom at night, it was outside and it was dark. And I would think there is a guy with a knife, he's going to get me. And my heart would beat fast and things like that. And so I would make, a, I had a little kind of, you know, funny feeling and then it would become this huge negative fantasy. And I would rush to the bathroom, rush back. <laughs> until I finally use a what is this? And instead of going into the fantasy, what is this? What is this? And I realized, who would know I was there in the middle of nowhere to come and get me? <laughs> because this was, I realized it was a little self-centered. You know, to think somebody knew I was there and definitely wanted to kill me it was a little kind of fantastic. Fantasmagoric. But so it's in a way it's kind of to start to see. So when he says you don't let it rise, but also you don't let it be annihilated, it doesn't mean that it does not exist, but we don't feed it, and at the same time we don't reject it. Because if we feed it, it proliferates, if you reject it, you're going to bring tension and then it's going to come back even more. Then another one. For ordinary man or woman is Buddha and compulsion are awakening. A foolish thought makes one an ordinary person while an awakened thought makes one a Buddha. A passing thought that clings to sense objects is compulsion, while a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. So here, I mean, basically, it's showing us a little of a roadmap. 
between this sentient being and between being a Buddha. So often we have this idea, I'm either a terrible sentient being who aspires to be this amazing Buddha, and once I am an amazing Buddha, I'll be amazing forever. When actually what they're saying is that any person is a Buddha and compulsion are awakening. I think it's very important to see that the awakening is not going to be found outside of our problematics, of our difficulties. It's going to be, it's part of it. To think that we're going to have a Buddhahood, an awakening, where then there is no bad habits and then there is no problem. Because actually that's where we become Buddhas, in seeing the compulsion, in recognizing them, in seeing the way they condition us, but also realizing that we can be free. We don't need to be determined, we don't need to be identified. And so I think if we see the habit, if we see the compulsion, we start to have a taste of that Buddhahood, of that awakening. So in a way, I think we have to be very careful to think that when we're on a retreat, we might experience really special state. But then to think that I'm going to take this state and keep it at home, at the office, and think of that nature. I think it's very nurturing, because it makes us experience ourselves differently. But we, we have to be careful not to be identified with that, what I want to be. To be feeling just peaceful, or just clear, or really loving. But that conditional, in a way it's conditional on us sitting here for a week. But it doesn't mean that we cannot bring some of that in a different way in our daily life. And so, a foolish thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. This, I think, to me, what we're developing is actually choice. Over time, to be able to make the choice. Do I need to continue to think in that way, to feel in that way, to be obsessed by this? Or do I move more towards some creative engagement? To me, what we're developing here is instead of reacting very automatic, very fast, learning to be more creatively engaged. So that if something wonderful happens, being creatively engaged with that. If something difficult happens, being creatively engaged with that. And so, but seeing, I think to me that's part of the humility. Having the humility to know one thought, and I could be an ordinary person. And another thought, and I can be a Buddha. And sometimes, you know, you have with a friend, you know, and they tell you their story. And it's interesting because sometimes you think, well, I could just tell them, you know, get yourself together, you know, come on, you know, what's the problem? And then you think, maybe that would not be very helpful. Can I say it another way? Can I say it 
Or can I be with them in a way which would help? Is it about me or is it about them? And if it's about them, can I find a way to be with them instead of what I think would be the best for them? But more, in what way can I listen to them? Can I be there for them? in a way which would work. And then to me that becomes very creative. Being a Buddha, I would say, is being creative within any situation. To see, can I creatively connect with this moment? And so I would say, in a way, that second thought is very much about being in the experience. Because in order to be creatively engaged, we have to be with what is going on, and not in the idealized notion or the abstract notion. We need to be right here. What are the conditions? What are the circumstances? And then a passing thought that clings to sense object is compulsion. While a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. And to me, this is basically, I think, there is this movement. The movement of grasping and the movement of opening. And so, in a way, certain conditions are going to make us grasp more. Other conditions are going to help us to release more. And so, I think, in a way, what we need first to see is how we grasp and identify upon contact. And I think that's part of a retreat, is about that. When I hear a sound, when I feel a sensation, when I have a thought, when I feel an emotion, when I see something, when I taste something. I mean, every breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you have a great opportunity to practice this. You know, you see the food, you smell it, looks good, I'll put a little more on my plate and then you taste it and it doesn't taste like what you thought whatsoever how can I get rid of it without anybody seeing so in a way just eating, I think eating especially in silence I think is a great opportunity with contact, with food what do we do with the taste how do we react or not how do we creatively engage? Or when you work, the same, when you cut your carrots or clean the bathroom or work in the garden. You are in contact with people, with things, with effort. And then you think you put too much effort, not enough effort. How? I mean, this is interesting effort. Kind of, because we're also in contact with the effort we've put in. And the thought we have about the effort or not we put in or whatever. And so just to be aware of all these contacts. And do I grasp? Or do I creatively engage? To me, that's what we're doing on a retreat. is helping us to move from this immediate grasping to more this creative engagement. And then there is more possibility. There is more flexibility.
Then he knows the word. That's Chinol from a Korean Zen master from the 12th century. To have no wrongdoing in the midst of the mind is a precept. To have no giddiness in the midst of the mind is concentration. To have no foolishness in the mind is wisdom. And here he is looking at, you know, with the three training. I think it's very important to see that if we want to develop on the path, we need to cultivate equally ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And in a way, each has a function. So in a way, to have no wrongdoing in the midst of the mind is a precept. And as the Buddha pointing out, it's not that there is, you know, you have to have the mind has to be a certain way. There is a precise, precise set of do and don'ts. But actually it's more the intention, the attitude. Do I come with ill will or non-ill will? Do I come with kindness or not kindness? Do I come with this idea of renunciation? Or do I come with, I want more? And this really, in a way, ethics is really about different things. It's about our relationship with the other. It's also looking in our mind. Are we harmless in our mind to ourselves and others? Or are we plotting revenge, for example? So, and, and what I find sometimes interesting, like if, you know, you have a, possibly a difficulty with somebody, and then generally nowadays, you know, you have some difficulty with somebody, you're going to write an email, you know, and I will tell what's what in my email. And I don't often have difficulty nowadays, I don't think too much of email, but time to time, if I have to, I compose email in my mind. But what I do is at first I go first about generally three rounds. And what I notice is that the first round is a little unkind, borderline unkind. Second one, a little kinder. Third one, more creative and kind. And so I think, in a way, ethics is not that I must always be a good person. But I think it's kind of looking how the mind, where does it go? What, what, what is it impels by? Is it impels by, I am right, and I want everybody to know I am right, and to agree I am right? Or, how can I creatively engage in this situation? How can I come to some understanding or how kind of come to some compromise or whatever it is. So ethics to me is about actually creatively engaging compassionately, wisely in relationship. But it doesn't mean that we can do it all the time to the same degree. So actually ethics is an aspiration. In a way we aspire to be ethical. We aspire to be generous, to be kind. And then we look, what are the conditions that helps me to be ethical, to be kind? 
And I would say one of the things that actually doesn't help you to be ethical or compassionate is busyness. You suddenly decide, for whatever reason, I am busy. I have this to do, I have that to do, and off you go, tunnel vision. Then you might have somebody saying, please help, I don't have the time, maybe tomorrow, you know, maybe, but not now, not now. And so in a way it's interesting to know, what is it that makes we are unethical or uncompassionate? Unethical sometimes is, I really want that. Can I find a way to get it? Regardless, or do I take other things in consideration? I really, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you have some problem with somebody in the office. It's the same. I was, when I was a nun in Korea, finally one day everybody left for the season. We had three-month season, and generally I shared the room with four other people, and I was sure I could not meditate because of them. You know, if only they were not there, I'm sure I would meditate much better. So you see, it was like, you know, they're problematic, you know, if they disappear, then I'll be fine. Little rejection there. So finally they all go, and I have three months on my own, meditating. And within two weeks, I realized it was not their problem. <laughs> it was mine. We used to see, you know, I think in ethics, there are so many different things in terms of how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others. And so kind of which side are we looking? What are we considering? Then to have no giddiness in the mind is concentration. So basically here he's talking about meditation. He said if you do the meditation, if you cultivate concentration, then it helps you to have a more stable, more calm. And if you have more calm, then it might be easier to be clear. And I think this is something we can notice in daily life, that we can easily get stressed. I know that sometimes I get like weirdly stressed by small thing, and then I'll say something stupid. You know, I think, wait a minute, why did I say that? And generally I can recognize it's a little kind of funny, tiny little stressful feeling. And so now I'm trying to learn to be with that feeling. And so not kind of be more aware of what happened when the feeling. But sometimes you speak faster than you think when you're little like that. So in a way trying to see what is it that in a way makes me a little stressed, maybe a little giddy. And then I don't have that calm. I don't have that stability. And then the last one, to have no foolishness in the mind, is wisdom. And this is really about, in a way, perception. But I think it's also about amplification. I think if we really understand through the vipassana, through the experiential inquiry, if we really experience for ourselves impermanence, unreliability, conditionality, then I think we see the world in such a different way. We, 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 because I think one of our big problems is amplification. 
we amplify, we exaggerate. And then it's very hard to be wise if you exaggerate. And so in a way it's to notice if we are really creatively in the experience without exaggeration, then it's much easier to be wise. And if we go into that, it's always like this, and they're terrible, they never do this, or whatever it is, and then it's kind of you fix things, and it's hard to engage with them. And the last one, however well you practice meditation, without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. However well you endure austerity, without wisdom, you will be like a person who intends to go east and head west. So here what he is saying is that you can practice lots of meditation, but without moral discipline, it will be, it will be kind of, it can be misguided. So you could have actually lots of amazing experience through the meditation. But it doesn't mean that you will be necessarily ethical. Like my friend and his confession on Facebook. You know, he's supposed to be a great master and transmitted and everything. And he has done lots of things which were really unskillful, really unethical. And so it's to see, you see, you can do a lot of meditation, but it had to be, in a way, grounded on ethics. And that's really, in a way, I would say, gives it its humanity. The meditation by itself, I would say, is not enough. You really need to have that ethical attitude. And of course, the idea that both feed each other. The meditation helps us to be more ethical. The ethics helps us to develop more meditation, to see that the two complement each other. And then the last one, however well you endure austerity, without wisdom, you will be like a person who instant to go west and then head east, or vice versa. So we saying, again, you can practice meditation a lot, have amazing experience, but if there is no wisdom, it's going to be a little static. Once when I was in Korea, there was these three monks who decided they were going to be like, you know, heroic monks. They were going to, this is, I mean, the, the romantic idea generally is that if you really want to practice and awaken, you must go to a hermitage and you practice day and night and then you awaken. And then generally you check, your awakening is checked by a teacher. So these three fellows, they go up to the hermitage and they practice really, really hard. And then this fellow, suddenly has a big experience of emptiness. So you think, emptiness, I have experienced emptiness, everything is empty, I am awakened. So you run down the monastery, goes to see the master and said, Master, Master, confirm my emptiness, you know, and my awakening. And so the master takes his, he has a big stick, much bigger than this one, <laughs> hits him on the shoulder and and I say, hey, 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 this is painful. And so Master, well, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not convinced we go to the next. Master does exactly the same thing. And then he goes to the third one, who does exactly the same thing. 
And so is to see that, yeah, we can practice hard. And that's what, you know, uh, we've been doing here. You could say it's austerities. I got a little note about, you know, why do we need to sit so much? <laughs> well, we're not sitting so much, but we're sitting, yeah, considering, you know, everybody else, we're sitting quite a bit during this week. And so the person was saying, why, is, why sitting? Why is there so much emphasis on sitting? in the Zen tradition. And that's all because of Bodhidharma. That's a fault of Bodhidharma. So what can we say, you know? It's, uh, we sit facing the wall because of Bodhidharma. And he's a great patriarch, one of the great patriarchs of the Zen tradition. And he's renowned to have sat for eight years facing the wall. And he, he faced it so much that his face got impregnated in the rock. <laughs> and if you go to the temple, you can see the rock with the impregnation. I was there in the Shaolin temple. But possibly it's a bit mythic. But this is why, this is why we sit in meditation. I mean, there could be many other reasons. Because I think why we, why we do meditation in a certain way Often, I think it's because of temperament, different temperament, possibly also because of the weather, I would say. And um, in, uh, like, I mean, the, I know a nun, she used to teach one hour sitting, one hour standing, one hour lying down, one hour walking. And personally, I'm not sure I could have done one hour standing, actually. So, so, here she was totally equal, one hour of each. In some of the places you do sitting and walking equally. When we do the more Vipassana retreat, it's more equal. But if you do a Zen retreat, I mean, and we have shortened it, you know. In Korea you would sit 50 minutes, five zero, But we shortened it to 30, 35. And I think it's just because of the tradition. Is it, I don't think they think sitting is better than standing, lying down, or walking. But I think as a group, it's easier to do, to sit together. Especially it's minus 10 or 15 outside. It's kind of easier to walk indoors. Or if it's really, really hot outside, which are the two seasons where they sit is in winter and in the summer. And very likely they found that just doing the sitting and a little bit of walking, considering the weather, the geography, was good. And then because of Bodhidharma too, mm -hmm. I think it plays a role in it. But no, I mean, sitting is not more sacred than anything else. But that's what the, the Zen tradition has, has chosen to do. But one can do standing meditation, lying down meditation, and walking meditation. I think they all different style. And of course, some people might prefer to sit, and some people might prefer to walk. And then it's finding, you know, a compromise between the two. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions? Um, or can I ask, um, in Zen tradition, do you have the same idea in Theravada of meta-meditation? I mean, meta isn't a word I've really heard much this week, and sort of from the, coming from the Theravada tradition, if you like, it seems, looking at Zen, it seems rather more sort of dispassion than 
You see, you see, you see. Now, the, the, the way it works is a very different environment. So what you have, like in the Theravada tradition, uh, it's very individualistic. You know, everybody sits in their little hut, do their own thing. When in the Korean tradition, is part of the Chinese Chan tradition, is the great assembly. And so then, compassion, you don't have the four Brahma Vihara, but what you have instead is actually the four vows, which you recite all the time, and, what, and the first vow is sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And, but what I would say is even more important in the Korean tradition, Zen tradition, is actually the Bodhisattva precept. You have 10 major and uh, then 40, 42 minor precepts, which I have translated. And that's really about compassion and compassionate activity. And, the, and we recite them once every two weeks. So every two weeks, we take this precept. And the lay people take them every year. So for them, although they have the refuge, what is more important for them, I would nearly say, is the retaking of the Bodhisattva precept. So I say, the idea of those precept is that you intend to be wise and compassionate, but you are sentient beings, so you might make mistakes, so then you have to be reminded of them. And what I could observe, like after a while in Korea, I could understand the text. And then I realized that a lot of what they did was because of the precept. That actually, that's where the training of compassion was in being inspired by the precept. And within that, they have this amazing ritual in the monastery. And to me, that was so impressive. Because you see, we can cultivate metta. I think it's a very good method. But it doesn't mean necessarily that you will be kind to your neighbor. You, know, so you have to move from the practice to the actuality. And they had this practice in Korea, out of the precept, that if you made a mistake, you just had to bow three times to somebody a little higher up and say you made a mistake. And that was it. And what was very interesting is that the Westerner, we could not do it. You know, we would go there and somebody would say, you made a mistake, and we'd say, but really, da-da-da-da. And they would say, you know, if you bow three times, it's all over. <laughs> and, and to me, it seems easy, but to me it was really moving to see that you could just, you, you had to acknowledge your mistake and bow and it would really be forgiven. Because I think in the West, we forgive, but we don't forget. <laughs> so I would say there, in the Zen tradition, really what is uh, the framework of the compassionate attitude is really the Bodhisattva precept. And that's really the way they are with animals, the way, I mean, when my teacher, whenever he met a cow, or uh, when, the way they do a lot of things, that's where it comes in. That's where I see the practice of compassion, loving kindness going in. Yeah, so, so if I understand well, um, awakening cannot be a, a one big bang uh, event, you know, like uh, in the story of the Buddha or, or maybe many other stories. It has to be uh, many small steps or 
at least uh, many awakenings. So why is it uh, is it true, and why is it that in in the story and Buddhist text it's very often like a, a, a major event, single event in a, in a Buddha? Well, why is it like this? I think it's a long answer, so I won't go there. But <laughs> but I think I think what we have to see is that. When you look at the text, I mean, of course, the, pre- the, the, the awakening of the Buddha is presented as this quite major thing, no doubt about it. But also what is interesting is that they say his awakening, which is a final complete awakening, can only be experienced in the body of a man. Personally, I'm a little dubious. <laughs> gendered awakening? You have the Big Bang, but the Big Bang is gendered? I'm a little, I think it's a little cultural, if I may say so. So then that's why I would question a little the Big Bang theory. It's already slightly kind of, you know, colored by that. But when the Buddha talks about awakening, is generally very clear. Awakening is freedom from greed, hatred, and confusion. So, of course, you can have a sudden moment, a sudden experience. I think this is one of the big debates you have. Is awakening and practice sudden, sudden? So this is it forever after? Or is it sudden awakening followed by gradual practice, which then you have a sudden awakening followed by gradual practice? And there is a big debate in the Zen tradition, even just there, when they believe, you know, you just have sudden, sudden is the best. But I see people who believe in sudden, sudden, and they still have to practice for years. And they might have an awakening, and they don't seem better than the one who practice gradually. So I think the point is actually to look, you have the abstraction, awakening, the big bang, and then you go for it, you go for it. I don't know, I'm not convinced, you know. I met many great teachers who were supposedly awakened, and I could really feel they were kind of greatly practiced. But in all of them, I could see that they were not perfect and they were not omniscient, that's for sure. And they were all colored by their culture and by their practice. Because you see, that's interesting, they're awakened. So, I mean, they're awakened, they're beyond grasping. And then they'll tell you, my method is better than yours. You see, it's kind of, what are we talking about? It could be that, yes, they have much less greed. Or maybe no greed. Or maybe no hatred. Maybe no confusion. But it doesn't mean that they might not suffer. But if they suffer, they will be different with their suffering. They will not be identified with the suffering. And the Buddha, just before his death, he was in great pain. So the fact that he was all enlightened did not mean he did not suffer from his illness. But maybe he had a different relationship to it. Or when his cousin gave him big hassle, 
he kind of, you know, he did not say, oh, you know, I understand everything. No, no, he said, you know, you kind of spittle, kind of, you know, no good, you know, forget it. So he insulted him. I kind of told him to go. So, so when, when they told the story, the st their own stories, maybe they, they emphasized one specific uh, event, one specific awakening, which was maybe the biggest they had experienced so far, or something like that, in a series of, of events. Probably. Well, you see, I think what you have to see is that generally when you are presented with a tradition, you are presented with a tradition which is in competition with others. So, I mean, the Buddha is supposed, is, is the tongue was supposed to go over there and many other things, you know, and his, his, his hand were palm like a dark, you know, because he had to have this in that time, otherwise he really was not worth competitor. So, very likely, at some point, he had a breakthrough. Very likely. But before the breakthrough, he practiced quite a bit. And he continued to practice afterward. So, personally, I think, yes, you, you can have breakthrough. But you see, the breakthrough has to be embedded in daily life. They have to, to, to make a difference Because you see, I think it's easy to have a breakthrough. But I think what is difficult is actually to dissolve the habits. Me, that's what I observe. Yeah, people can have amazing experience, can have insight, breakthrough. But then is how are they in their daily life? Are they ethical? Are they wise? I think there is a little too much emphasis on that experience and possibly not enough emphasis on what happened after that. And that's why in, in my family, the Zen family I belong to, they really, uh, they, are, they were one of the rare ones were into sudden and gradual. And to me, it makes much more sense. You have a sudden breakthrough, that then you have to integrate in your daily life, then you continue to practice, you have another breakthrough, then. My teacher was reputed to have had three awakenings. But he did not stop practicing. He practiced to the last day of his life, he practiced. And he told me, that's what was really for me very inspiring and humbling. You know, before he died, a few months before, he was a little weak, and we were, I went walking with him to take some fresh air. And then, we stopped and he said, you know, you never know how you're going to be when you die. I don't know how I'm going to be when I die. Although he had three breakthroughs, three awakenings, and he was a great teacher. I don't know. For this reason, I have to practice till the last minute. And I suggest you do too. And to me, to hear this was, wow, you know, very humbling. Yes? How many years ago did you and Stephen leave the monastery, and how is your teaching life different from your monastic life? So I was there from 75 to 85. Stephen was first in the Tibetan tradition, I think, from 74. Then he also left in uh, 
went then to Korea and then left in 85. So, I mean, we, we both have been kind of had many influences. Kind of me, I had more like Korean influences. Stephen had Tibetan influences. Then he met Goenkai and Vipassana. Then he met Korean influences. And so personally, I feel we've been fed by all this. But to me, what was the final thing for uh, what influenced me was actually when I went to research women and Buddhism. And I met 40 women, nuns and lay people, Westerner and Easterner. And I learned from every one of them. And what I learned was that the technique was not that important. The tradition was not that important. What was important was the sincerity and the practice, and also to really uh, practice, but with the idea of practicing in daily life, making a difference in daily life. So I would say I have been influenced by what I practice, but I'm also influenced by living. Because, I mean, I practiced for 10 years in Korea, six months of the year, 10 hours a day. But the challenge was really to integrate it. When I was working, when I stopped being a nun, when I was working, when I was living in community, when I started to teach, and I learned also from the people I teach. So to me, this is a constant evolving of what I learned, what I practice, what I continue to practice, what I continue to learn. So at one level it's quite different from what we learned, and at another level it's not different from what we learned. But we're less in competition. I am not in competition with anybody. So I don't feel that, you know, I have to kind of say Zen is, you know, so good. And the Theravada, boo, you know. <laughs> uh, this is not my competition. I, I really, that's one thing I, I could see very clearly, that I could understand why the, why the people do it in Korea, in Tibet, in Japan, in wherever. I can understand why they do it, but I don't have to do it. So that's one thing I could say is a little different. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm just curious as of all the kinds there are in the tradition, why did the Korean choose that particular one? Okay, so you, you have a, a thousand seven hundred koans. So you have a thousand seven hundred case cases. And the reason I think, I mean, the, in Korea you have different koans. You also have the Mu koans and you have different things. But the one that you use the most is really what is this. And, I, and the reason for that is because I think it's in a way more modern and more relevant. Because if at the beginning of the week I had told you, sit down and ask, why the teeth on the board? <laughs> <laughs> Teeth on the wooden board. I mean, I think it would require more explanation. <laughs> and I'm not sure, like, you know, teeth on the board, teeth on the board. <laughs> I'm 
you see, I think to me, the what is 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 more resonating in terms of you know something we can use now because a lot of them are like the teeth on the board is a bit like you must be really really into Zen to kind of work with teeth on the board. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think what is 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 a little more kind of. Uh, I would say reasonable as a question to ask. So it, has, it has more all encompassing. Yes. And it has a color. Yeah. And more applicable yeah. to your life. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, thought, I, I thought there might have been a tradition around why it was chosen. No, I mean, no, no, I think the reason is, I mean, one of the reasons also is that it's from Winnet, it's from the Sixth Patriarch. So it's one of the important cases. You see, I mean, you have the, I would say the, the 1700 don't have equal kind of, you know, some are really kind of weird and some are really kind of by minor player, let's say. But the what is this is by the six patriarch Chinese. I mean, you know, he's a big dude. He's an important <laughs> person. Don't know. But you see, I think that it's also that. It's also historically, he was a very important person, and the case was an important case, and so I think that's also why they choose it. But I think also because it's quite relevant to kind of something more immediate and direct. And then we'll stop here so that you have a little walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.